Who am I? You sure you want to know? The story of my life is not for the faint of heart. If somebody said it was a happy little tale, somebody lied. I will never forget these words. With great power comes great responsibility. Who am I? I'm Spider-Man. Welcome to Now Playing's Amazing Spider-Man Retrospective Series. Can Spider-Man come out to play? Part of the Now Playing Marvel Comic Movie Series. The real crime would be not to finish what we started. Hosted by Jacob. But do you think it's true, all the terrible things they say about him? No, no. Stuart. Ah, some kind of freaky Lewis something. I could do. And Arnie. He stinks and I don't like him. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com every Tuesday and Friday for another Spider-Man movie review, ending in a week of release review of this summer's The Amazing Spider-Man. We're gonna have a hell of a time. Ooh, my spider sense is tingling. If you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) But if your spider sense is tingling, it's because this podcast will have detailed plot spoilers and mild language. So listener discretion is advised. Go get him, Tiger. Today we're discussing Spider-Man. The real one, finally. (laughs) Starring Tobey Maguire, William Defoe, Kirsten Dunst, James Franco, Cliff Robertson, Rosemary Harris, and J.K. Simmons. Who am I? I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is your friendly neighborhood podcaster, Jacob. And we are finally discussing the Spider-Man movies people want to talk about after last week when we took a week's diversion back to television. No more TV. I just want to celebrate that. No matter how the rest of this series goes, I think we are done with TV movies. And I'm as happy about that as anyone. Because we are here talking about, I'll show my hand, one of my all-time favorite films here. I am so excited to be talking about Spider-Man. I feel like Stuart when he was talking about Alien. And I'll tell you guys a story, though. I did not want to see this when it came out. Wow. I didn't go until it had been out for well over a month. What finally got you to go? Yeah. What's that about? Well, this movie came out just a little over 10 years ago. Just a little over 10 years ago, I got married. And it was a Star Wars-themed wedding. Attack of the Clones was coming out. Stuart was my best man in full Jedi regalia. Did you dress up, Stuart? Did you cosplay? Uh, <laughs> I, the hardest part were the boots. Believe it or not, I got thick legs. And getting that, I was, it was painful. I don't know how I did it. A lot of Crisco and prayers. I got in the suit. I sure did. Marjorie still tells the stories of pulling that boot off your foot. <laughs> but... Keep in mind, The Phantom Menace had been hugely popular. With you. <laughs> box According to who? People's wallets. Yeah, The Phantom Menace. Woo. Number one film of that year. Okay. But I had felt it was overshadowed by the less profitable Matrix. Well, here comes 2002. I'm all about Star Wars. Couldn't be more about Star Wars. Living Star Wars, loving Star Wars, and everybody's talking about Spider-Man. Yes, that doesn't surprise me a bit that you would see Spider-Man as a threat to your Star Wars fandom. And truthfully, it was. It dominated the box office, and 
I'd seen Attack of the Clones many, many times, but despite being a big Spider-Man fan in the 90s and all the good things I was hearing, I did not want to see this movie. I did not want to give my support to a non-Lucas film at that point. Finally, a friend of mine's like, you want to go check out Spider-Man? I hear the crowds have finally died down a little bit. I'm like, all right. I only went, only went because of Sam Raimi, a man to whom I did have a bunch of allegiance thanks to the Evil Dead series and more importantly to me, Darkman. You're always coming back to Darkman for some reason. Yeah, it seems like a franchise we're destined to do at some point. Die, Darkman, die! We're done with TV, but not direct to video. <laughs> <laughs> Which might be worse, who knows? But Sam Raimi is an interesting one for me. It's a puzzler. I think I'm a fan, and then I look at half the resume and I go, I haven't seen them or I'm not into them. I think that Sam Raimi has a fun pop art sensibility that when it hits, is great. And I think I tend to like his smaller efforts. Drag Me to Hell, Evil Dead 2, his serious one, A Simple Plan. I really was a big fan of that. The Gift, the ones that get less airplay, I feel, nowadays. But I feel like some of them work and some of them are just kind of quirky. But I always try to see what he's up to and I'll always give it a consideration. I think that he is someone worth watching. He's sort of like a little less geeky, a little less movie-centric Tarantino. And so this Spider-Man being one of the bigger ones, I've never been a collector of the comic book. I was kind of blasé about it. I ended up seeing the movie only because I was stuck at a conference in Vegas and had run out of money. I had just enough for a movie ticket and the line said die down by that point. It was well into July. So it really was a choice of convenience that I saw this movie in theaters at all. And I have not seen either of the two subsequent Raimi Spider-Man movies. Raimi wasn't a draw for me. I knew him as that Evil Dead guy. It seems like a weird choice to do these Spider-Man movies. I didn't get the connection there. And I already said, not a big Spider-Man fan when it comes to the comics. Like you, Arnie, my movie that summer was Attack of the Clones. It was finally a Star Wars film that had some action after that Phantom Menace that was a slight disappointment. So I had seen Attack of the Clones probably already four or five times by this point. And I was going to go again. And I got to the theater early, like maybe a half hour early. I'm like, you know what? I'll duck into the Spider-Man movie. I'll watch that half hour. If it grabs my attention, I'll sit it out. I'll just watch the rest of it. And I won't jump theaters over to Attack of the Clones. And I stayed the whole time. And that's why I saw Spider-Man, because I had some extra time to kill before that Star Wars film. So even though we're coming at this with different appreciations for the character, and it's really crazy to me, Arnie, that knowing that you've always loved Spider-Man, none of us were jumping up and down for this. For whatever reason, we all saw it in theaters, but only barely. And truthfully, when I walked out of theaters, I was still so Team Lucas, it's like, it was all right. (laughs) Which one made more money, Spider-Man or Attack of the Clones? Spider-Man was number one of the box office for the year. Mm. Attack of the Clones is the lowest grossing of the prequels. So it handed its ass to Attack of the Clones, which is another reason I think I held a grudge against this movie. And now it's my favorite film. It's one of, I can say. When the DVD came out, enough time had passed with the burn of Attack of the Clones. I'd seen Attack of the Clones enough, felt it was a good enough movie that I was able to now go, you know, that Spider-Man film was pretty damn good. And I've seen this movie a lot. I didn't need to watch it for this review, though I happily did watch it just because I've seen it that much. I had no idea you were that into this movie. I knew you loved Spider-Man. I didn't know you loved Spider-Man 2002. Well, then why don't you give us the plot, if not the reciting of the movie? 
Peter Parker is less than your average teenager. Living with his Aunt May and Uncle Ben, he's the ultimate dweeb. Great at homework and terrible at just about everything else, including expressing his feelings to Mary Jane, the girl who lives next door that Peter has loved since first grade. Peter's only friend is Harry Osborne, who is also an outcast as his father is billionaire industrialist Norman Osborne. But it all changes for Peter one day on a school field trip when he's bitten by a genetically altered spider, which gives him the powers of a spider. He can climb up walls, jump high, he has the proportionate strength of a spider, he can shoot webs out of his wrist, and he has a spider sense that alerts him when danger is afoot. Peter thinks he can use these powers to impress Mary Jane, but first he needs a car, so he designs a red and blue costume and enters an amateur wrestling competition for money. He easily wins the match, but the fight promoter refuses to pay the prize money, so when a thug sticks up the wrestling promoter, Peter stands by and does nothing as the thief escapes. But that robber, fleeing from the crime, carjacked Uncle Ben, shooting and killing the old man in the process. Peter chases down the thief and realizes his own inaction led to the death of his uncle, and so remembering one of his uncle's last words, with great power comes great responsibility, Peter vows to never repeat that mistake and becomes Spider-Man, a masked vigilante stopping criminals wherever he finds them, though his activities are putting a strain on his college work and his friendship with roommate Harry, who has secrets of his own as he started to date Mary Jane. But the worst villain is closer than Peter thinks. Norman Osborn is working on a super soldier serum, sound familiar? For sale to the U.S. government. When the government threatens to pull their funding, Osborn experiments on himself, giving himself super strength and agility, but causing him to be mentally unstable, creating an alternate persona of the Green Goblin, who uses Osborn's armored suit and flying glider to homicidally pursue Osborn's desires. When the Goblin sees Spider-Man, he tries to first recruit the Webhead to join him in global domination, and when Spider-Man refuses, Goblin then tries to kill the web-slinger. And at Thanksgiving dinner, Osborn sees a wound on Peter's arm that Goblin delivered to Spider-Man, so the Goblin decides to get the web-slinger through his loved ones, first putting Aunt May in the hospital, then kidnapping Mary Jane for a showdown at the Roosevelt Island tram. The face-off occurs, and it's a big fight. Spider-Man saves Mary Jane and a tram full of children, and in the final fight, the Goblin tries to stab Peter in the back with his remote control glider, but Peter's spider sense alerts him and he dodges out of the way, and Norman is impaled with his own glider. With his dying words being, Don't tell Harry. Norman dies, so Spider-Man strips him of his armor and returns the corpse of Norman Osborn to his home, where Spider-Man is spotted by Harry. And in the final scene at Norman's funeral, Harry swears vengeance on Spider-Man, and Mary Jane confesses her love for Peter, a love Peter cannot return, as he sees that all who he love are in danger for as long as he is Spider-Man. And when the movie begins, I remember being in theaters and thinking, God damn, that's a cool Marvel logo. They should use that more often. <laughs> was this the first time they used it? This was the birth of the Marvel movie logo. We've watched these movies all out of order, so I couldn't recall. But I, I remember thinking that this was the first one, and it's still cool. I still like it. And putting it in time frame perspective, this would be coming two years after X-Men, but a year before Hulk and X2. And to put my mindset in perspective, X-Men was a film that had underwhelmed me, and X2 was one I really got more on board with, and so I kind of went into this still a little bit nervous, but yeah, the Marvel logo, I'm like, they're using comic books in their logo, tying back to their roots where I know Spider-Man best from. It put me in the right mindset, and Danny Elfman's music, I've gone on record with the Batman podcast saying how big a Danny Elfman fan I am, so I was happy to hear him here, 
even if I don't think this is his best work. It kind of reminded me, it had hints of Batman 89 in it, but that just might be because it's Danny Elfman, and all his stuff has hints of itself in it. I thought he was on autopilot here. I do feel like they're hedging their bets. There's a lot of money tied up in this. It took Sony a long time to get the property of Spider-Man and to be delivered this movie. It doesn't need to just be a hit. It needs to be a Tim Burton Batman mega hit in order to be profitable. So they layer this movie again and again with the two superhero films that have crossed over and been huge phenomenons and that would be superman 78 and batman 89 and yeah i feel like elfman's score here it's just cut and paste from burton that said it's not bad it's serviceable it doesn't put me into the mindset of spider-man the character it makes me think of the gothic brooder of burton that's the biggest complaint i'd have with it can you hum it no Exactly. That's why I feel it kind of fails as an Elfman score. I can barely hum it because I've seen the movie so often, but it's all percussive and strings. But I don't necessarily think they went to Elfman because of the Batman Association. Elfman and Raimi were really good friends. They'd started working together back on Darkman and Army of Darkness, and the two were really close, and I think it was Raimi's composer of choice. Sure. And I also get the impression that basically what Raimi wanted, Raimi got in this movie. He had complete creative control to do what he wanted as he wanted, and given just about all the money he wanted to do it. Which is amazing, because up until that point, I don't think he had ever delivered a true hit for a studio. He had made little movies that had been, you know, maybe tidy profitable, but most of the time, box office failure. He was still considered part of the indie director 90s, who had never really sold out yet, who had not really been able to prove that he can translate that into mass appeal. It would have been a risky choice, and the bean counters would have been sweating bullets to know that this was the guy at the head of your juggernaut. And as we talked about a little bit last podcast, he wasn't necessarily the first choice. They went through everybody in Hollywood. I think the name that was most closely tied pre-Ramey was James Cameron, who was looking at doing this a lot in the 90s before Titanic and then retirement pre-Avatar. Yeah. And I do feel like his thumbprint ends up in this finished film. I'm sure we'll talk about it. But he had a concept for Peter and puberty that I think still plays out here. Raimi, though, grew up a Spider-Man fan. He had a giant Spider-Man mural on his wall. He read the comics. I think that's very evident in this movie, as this feels like the comic come to life. He sold me as a Spider-Man fan with the product. I think his fandom probably sold Avia Rod and Sony that he was the man to do it. And I loved his previous effects films. Yeah, they were smaller films, but his style in Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness all were such that I felt he could definitely pull this off. That said, I was still a little put off by the opening credits where we see a lawnmower man like Spider-Man kind of (laughs) popping up around the whole thing. I swore this would have been a 3D movie. This looked like those effects you get these days now. Eye-popping. I was just scared because I knew Spider-Man was mostly CGI. I'm like, if he looks like this, I'm getting up and walking out. (laughs) Well, this was in the 
dog days of that kind of CGI effects. One of the reasons why it took so long was not just the rights entanglement, but because how are you going to do it? How are you going to have a character, literally, if you're going to do it faithfully, swing around the city of New York? It has to rely on computer graphic technology selling you on it. And I can see why Raimi would get the job for that, because he had been notorious for rigging crazy camera rigs. You know, he, for Quick and the Dead, that quirky western with Sharon Stone and Leonardo DiCaprio and Russell Crowe. He would design cameras that shot out of guns and speed at people at record rates and it, he was known as almost a dangerous experimentalist when it came to catching a visual style. And so if anyone was going to capture the whoosh and the rush of Spider-Man swinging through New York, I can see why you'd bank it might be Raimi. He does have an eye for that kind of stuff. Even from his first Evil Dead film, he likes to move the camera, and he does so with comic glee. Make no mistake, he did exactly that on this. They tied cameras to giant bungees and just let them swing like Spider-Man would, and then would use some of that footage. They were very proud to say there is no shot in this movie that is 100% CGI. There are always real elements matted together with perhaps CGI elements added, which shocked me because I really thought some of this was video game. But fortunately, it does get a lot better than these opening credits. And right away, we're into it. Peter Parker, high school dweeb, so geeky, even the bus driver enjoys tormenting him by driving away as Peter chases the bus. Even the fat guy, you know, he's eating a donut, he's laughing at him. He is the lowest on the totem pole of high school. There are all this press lately about bullies in school. Well, this is the one that would end up in the news. This is the kid that would get the worst pummeling. In this very first scene, though... We're also introduced at almost the exact same moment to Mary Jane, who convinces the driver to stop the bus so her next door neighbor can finally get on. And I'm going to ask right off the bat, does that make her already too sympathetic to Peter's plight that she's the one in the whole school who can see him? Here's the deal. I mean, going way, way, way back to the third episode of this Marvel retrospective, Kick-Ass. If you had not seen this, now you get Kick-Ass, right? The opening narration, the loser going to high school, it's all riffing off of this movie. The big difference, though, is the love interest in Kick-Ass, she's not sympathetic at the beginning. She actually has somewhat of a story arc. Whereas Mary Jane here, you ask Arnie, is she too sympathetic? Yeah, she almost kind of is for me because she doesn't change throughout this whole movie. She's just the same character. Her love interest might change a little bit, but she's always the nice, sweet person. What does she learn? What is her arc? Oh, we'll talk about that in great depth as we go. She has an arc. It's a very subtle arc, but she definitely has one. My question was just, is it showing too much of the hand already? Because to use your analogy to Kick-Ass, I think that is a stronger dynamic where you love the girl who doesn't know you exist versus loving the girl who knows you exist, but she's too cool to show it too much in public. But here she does. She stops the bus. It's not even Molly Ringwald post-breakfast club when she sees Anthony Michael Hall getting beat up and remembers that one Saturday they had together but does nothing. Here she actually says, stop the bus. Of course she would know who she is. They've grown up together. She's aware of him. It's not like she's a snotty, rude girl. She's just in with the wrong crowd because because she has a crappy father she's learned to be attracted to crappy guys you know here she is riding with flash thompson and they can't do enough to make him reprehensible 
Let me ask you, Arnie, because you're more familiar with the comics. I know that Mary Jane was the girl next door for Peter, but they never meet till much later on. They didn't go back to elementary school, did they? No, they met around issue 40 or so. I don't know the exact issue number of Spider-Man. It was always teased that Aunt May was going to fix Peter up on a date with their neighbor's niece, Mary Jane. And Peter's like... Well, if they're fixing me up on a date with her, she must be just hideous. And he's always avoiding Mary Jane. And finally, after many issues, he finally meets Mary Jane and they go on a date and realizes she's absolutely stunning and gorgeous. So no, they did not grow up next door to each other. She was the niece of the next door neighbor. The reason she was the niece is because she did have an abusive alcoholic father who was a washed up wannabe writer who never made anything of himself. And so she ended up going to live with her aunt, thus had some connection with Peter in that way. Yeah, I like the fact that they have the crappy dad. It explains why she would not go instantly for Parker. That It works in the way that they're setting up the story. Flash Thompson, also a character straight out of the early Stan Lee comic book days, He might have dated Mary Jane sometime in their college period. Mary Jane did date just about every one of Peter's friends in the comics, as well as in the movie. Flash would go on to be one of Peter Parker's best friends and then lose his legs in the Afghanistan war and become Venom. So he has a whole story here that made me never like the casting of Flash in this movie. (laughs) He just seems too one note. Like, I could never see this character being friends with Peter in Spider-Man 3. It just, not this guy. I knew he had to be from the comic because he's in the musical. <laughs> and his name's Flash. You know, unless you're remaking Flash Gordon, you're not going to give that name to the character. No, he looks so much older than everybody else. And yeah, it's one-dimensionally a bad guy. Not only is he dating the girl that Peter wants to be with, he is purposely tormenting and targeting Peter specifically. Why Mary Jane would tolerate that, again, it's only because I know that she's hung up with living in an abusive household that I know that she forgives bad boys of their bad behavior. But here's the thing that Raimi did. Just about everybody you see in this movie is in the comic. I don't know about the army general, but the Green Goblin's little snively scientist from the comics... Everybody in the Daily Bugle office from the comics. All these people who are even just mentioned in passing from the comics. Raimi just translated the comics. He didn't really adapt. You get that sense here. I got to say, the strongest stuff in Spider-Man 2002 is the origin story. I feel like this movie excels every time it is telling us how Spider-Man came to be the man and the superhero he comes to be. I have a little more trouble when he gets into his skirmishes with Green Goblin, but this early stuff, these introductory scenes of these characters, I think all of it's really working, and Raimi's lightness of touch is making it fun in a way that no superhero movie that I can think of prior to this, your mopey Batman or your sulky Blade, even Superman, I feel like, He was a different register of goody-goody. This seems to be the snarky Spider-Man that you would have seen if you had picked up a comic. You say it's not too much like the Superman, the movie. No, it's not exactly the same, but I got that feeling. They could have done this dark, gloomy Spider-Man, updated for the new millennia. We had had Burton's Batman that was all goth, and we had the X-Men with Wolverine brooding around. They could have gone that path, but they didn't. They keep it 
pretty lighthearted for as much as a Spider-Man story could be. And that's the stuff intellectually that I like about the character, even though I've never been able to get in the comics. But it's this character that has a pretty dark origin story, but he keeps upbeat. He's always struggling to feed and provide money for Aunt May, but he stays upbeat. And that's what I like. It has that spirit of the Christopher Reeve Superman movies where they were more lighthearted. They were more optimistic. And this movie, in this first half hour, where we really get the origin story of Spider-Man, I was really digging it and I decided this movie had a half hour to prove itself to keep me in the theater and it did because of this origin story and what I noticed on this watching that I've never paid attention to before is how damn fast that origin story hits Raimi is so economical in his storytelling that by five minutes into this movie I know everything I need to know about Peter Parker's life and his friends or lack thereof. Less than 10 minutes into the movie, he's bitten and going to turn into Spider-Man. That's all I need. And it gives it to me in a way that's satisfying. It doesn't feel cliff notes. But then again, Spider-Man's original origin was told in about 20 pages, and it was the first half hour, 45 minutes of this film. So Raimi does a great job of keeping things moving along. Yeah, what I like about when he gets bit by the spider, I said that was a sore point in that Spider-Man TV movie. It's just the spider comes up and bites him, and I guess he gets powers. This one, you kind of have to pay attention, but they drop some lines. They show some monitors of this different DNA that they're combining in these spiders and the different powers this ultimate spider has that ends up biting Parker. So we don't get this big, long exposition, but there's enough things going around in the background. So once he gets bit and we get this cheesy DNA spiders crawling around the insides of him scene, but we get what's going on. We understand, okay, here's the list of powers he has because they're throwing that in there, but we don't have to have that big, long explanation. A couple more kudos I want to throw out here, too. They have finally explained away why Spider-Man would put on a blue and red suit because these genetically engineered spiders that's the color that they are now is that a stretch sure but it's something i'll take it i don't mind far-fetched if you make an attempt to justify it and that was a nice little touch there's plenty of nice little touches here the other one i want to salute is the way that they tie his blooming as a superhero into the love story mary jane is a character that will become important as he identifies himself as Spider-Man. And right here in the way that he's bitten, he is bitten because he has stayed behind to take her picture. Had that not happened, he wouldn't become Spider-Man. But because he took the risk of actually saying, can I get your picture, that starts him on the path to being who he's going to be. It's a nice, subtle way of showing us, I'll go ahead and say it, his manhood is puberty, his becoming an adult. Oh yeah, watching it this time, that's a big thing when he has talks with his Uncle Ben. It's about becoming a man, going through changes. This is a metaphor for puberty. And I definitely think that's supported as we see the powers manifest itself. I know... One of the big controversial choices of this iteration of Spider-Man is that his web shooters don't come from a mechanical device. They shoot from his palms. They are an ejaculation, if you were. (laughs) Well, now, you're taking this. I remember we talked about this in the 90s, Stuart, that in the Cameron script, Spider-Man would wake up and he'd webbed himself to the bed like a wet dream. So because of your meta-knowledge of that, that's how you took it. No, 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 Arnie. I had no idea about that. Come on. The scene where Aunt May knocks on the door after he's been shooting webs all over the place and he's kind of embarrassed. I'm getting dressed and it's semen all over the room. He's been masturbating furiously. Oh. Well, well, no, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to say that metaphor means that it is standing in for sex. I'm saying that it's in parallel to the way that boys change and they start to do different behavior 
behaviors, his becoming Spider-Man is very much like that activity. Yes, I definitely think you have to see it that way, that they are definitely saying something by making an organic web shooter. It's part of his development. I disagree that that's the case, because everything I've read on the subject comes down to it's too big of a stretch that Peter Parker gets bit by a spider and creates the world's best adhesive all in the same week. That's the problem is a suspension of disbelief issue, not a I want to tie it in to his puberty issue. And so they've decided that it makes sense. Spiders spin webs. If he gets all these other powers of a spider, why would he not get the webs? That just is simpler. And that's the explanation, I believe. Maybe when Cameron was writing it, because Cameron's kind of weird like that, it was the semen stand-in. But in this film, in Raimi's film, it's economy of storytelling. It's not a stand-in for ejaculation. It could be economic storytelling, but the way they play it off, the embarrassed teenage boy whose bedsheets are soaked in webs or whatever, why his mother figure is knocking on the door and he's embarrassed, I don't think that's too much of a stretch to see it the way Stuart and I do, Arnie. No, and the fact that he hasn't started doing this until he started making moves for Mary Jane, it's part of the story, and I don't want to make it seem more perverted than it is. I mean, I don't want to sit here and dwell on this, but I do think when you take that reading into consideration it actually is a nice way of showing how becoming a man and becoming spider-man is the same thing i think we're seeing the same movie jacob i think so now in the last scene we get of puny parker we do see toby mcguire's face pasted on a smaller body i think this was far more successful than what captain america did with the same effect many years later I never even realized, though, that that wasn't his body. I just thought it might have been makeup and, you know, posture. Agreed. I didn't recognize it as a special effect, which is probably the best compliment I can give it. I think that Captain America effect was so extreme. That's why, I mean, you go from Chris Evans' big body to this puny little thing. I mean, Toby, he goes from kind of skinny to kind of ripped. But then he wakes up and he's immediately bouncing off the walls. Hormones, the elderly people say. You know, I have a little problem with the casting of Ant-Man and Uncle Ben. First of all, Uncle Ben, he's not in the movie very much. I was shocked to hell to find out how old he was. He was about 80 when this film came out. He looks 50s to me. He aged very well. I hope when I'm 80, I look that good. Cliff Robertson. The, like, the actor's 80 in this? The actor is 80 years old. Wow. And they actually said in the special features they had to make him look older to try to be Uncle Ben. This guy's drinking his Jack LaLanne juicer juice. <laughs> and then Rosemary Harris is Aunt May. She kind of looks the part. I still think she looks too young. She just, she's had some work done, I think, because she's also like 75, but she is wrinkle free. He, he, I like these guys. I don't have a problem with their chemistry. I feel like they're a fuddy duddy loving couple. You know, I, I, they work for me. I think my problem is they don't feel fuddy duddy enough. This is something that I have a feeling is going to come up again when we get to Amazing Spider Man with Sally Field and Martin Sheen, but. What? What? That's who's playing his aunt and uncle? Yeah. Wow. No. Maybe they'll age him up. It's not like they're playing older than they are. They're the right age for this. It's just that Hollywood late 60s does not look like old people that you know. They look like Hollywood old people. 
and we get the entire discovery of the powers through here and the school fight scene where he gets the spider sense and everything. I love the scene. Very fun scene. Part of me wonders, though, you know, when a superhero starts flipping and shooting things out of his wrist and fighting all kinds of bad guys, does nobody remember the big spectacle in the school hallway? I don't think anyone saw the spider webs, really. I mean, sure, he was doing some flips, but a high school senior doing some flips to a guy dressed as a spider fighting a green goblin. I don't know if that's the immediate connection I make. Do I suspect every male on the cheer team to be a superhero? (laughs) Not to mention, this is a senior class. If he was going to be Spider-Man throughout his high school career, maybe they could start piecing it together. But they're all graduating very, very soon, so they're about to head off to different areas of their life. They're not going to be looking for the root of Spider-Man. By the time Spider-Man becomes a phenomenon, they're off throughout college or whatever they're doing post-high school. I do think this has some of the best stuff, though. It is fun to watch him climb walls, leap across the buildings, get revenge on Flash. All of that's very satisfying. Yes, and all, again, in the first 30 minutes. They don't waste time here. How many films have we talked about where we wait an hour for the hero to emerge? No, here, first 30 minutes, the guy's already learned everything about his powers. No, it's so much more economical than Ghost Rider or most of these things. Even when they're handled in flashback, I feel like this does it in a better way. I completely agree. And it's just so much fun as he does it. First of all, Tobey Maguire. Here's an actor. I'd seen him in some stuff. Pleasantville was where I primarily knew him from, but he was kind of an unknown quantity to me going in. He completely sells me with his every emotion. This guy really can act in this role. I completely bought him as a trot-upon nerd, and now I buy his excitement, his revelation. It might have been the same face he made when he web-swings for the first time as when he saw his payday for the Spider-Man tie-ins, but (laughs) I completely get his giddiness and his pure, unadulterated joy. I'm reminded of a joke that Chris Rock told when he hosted the Oscars some years ago. He was bemoaning the fall of true classic movie stars, and one time he blurted out, Toby McGuire, that's not a movie star, that's a boy in tights. But I gotta say, as much as I love Chris Rock, that's exactly what this Spider-Man needs. You need a boy in tights. You need someone who has the awkwardness to still look like bad things could happen, and watch him transform, watch him mature. That is the fun of this origin story, is watching him become comfortable in his identity. Who am I? That whole quest is the backbone of this. And you're right, I don't think anybody else could portray it as well. I know that this was, you mentioned Charlie Sheen before as being possibly up for this. Leonardo DiCaprio, Marky Mark. I'm sure every guy in young Hollywood was considered for this role, but I think going with a relatively unknown like Tobey Maguire, who had not buffed up for a role like this before and really hadn't carried a movie before, had mostly done supporting work. This was a real stroke of luck that Raimi had. Yeah, McGuire isn't someone that I get excited about when he's starring in a film. And when I heard, oh, he's going to play Peter Parker. Well, yeah, I guess he could play a nerd. No way in hell he could play Spider-Man. 
But you're right, Arnie. He pulls it off. Like, I think he does Spider-Man better than being a little lowly nerd in this film. I will disagree, Jacob. We'll get into it a little bit later. I love him during these opening scenes. But his Spider-Man, and, you know, we're kind of going back to when we were discussing all the different Batmans. Who was the best Batman? Who was the best Bruce Wayne? He's a great Peter Parker. He's a great Peter Parker learning his powers. Once we get past the midpoint of the movie, I'm not so sure he's a great Spider-Man. Well, and that's what I was getting at more when he's discovering his powers. Spider-Man before he puts on the mask or when he puts on that ski mask. I still liked him. Yeah, later on, we'll get into it. But early on, I like him as he's discovering all this. Swinging into a brick wall. I mean, I think those things are handled very, very well. You have to play comedy. You have to play sweetness. Not everyone can do that. And I really feel like Toby was primed to take advantage of where he was at in his career and really hit a home run here. And I want to also give compliments to Kirsten Dunst, another actress that I don't really think of too often. I think up to this point, her greatest role was in Interview with a Vampire, but I really believe her and like her as the love interest. I want to see these kids get together. And that's not always the case with these belabored love stories in superhero movies. Kirsten Dunst is a hard one for me. I saw her in Interview with a Vampire way back when, and for years after she was always just that girl from interview with a vampire i doubt we'll ever do an Anne rice retrospective so i'll just go ahead and say i wasn't really too impressed with interview with a vampire she was great in it i remember her as overacting but i haven't seen the movie since theaters i remember her specifically from a run she did on er during her awkward years then i became kind of a fan of bring it on a huge guilty pleasure of mine (laughs) i I knew you were gonna say that you're gonna name all the ones i've never heard of Bring It On is not a guilty pleasure. It is a good movie. It really is good. I watch that movie almost as much as Spider-Man. Never seen any of them, so maybe future retrospective there. (laughs) I know Kirsten mostly from her little art movies, probably movies you guys don't watch, like her Sofia Coppola work, Marie Antoinette and Virgin Suicides, or her recent turn with Lars von Trier, Melancholia. That's where I think of her now, but up to that point, I don't know what she was doing in the first decade of the millennium. She's one that's all over the place. I've seen Virgin Suicides, liked her in that, Bring It On, liked her in that, two very different roles as you can probably imagine from those titles and this i'm just gonna say it you know mary jane she grows up to be a soap opera actress kirsten dunce gives a good job at portraying someone that's going to be a soap opera actress (laughs) she falls flat for me in this i guess it's because she's too goody two-shoe right from the beginning why do I want to get invested in this character? Because she stuck up for a nerd at the beginning? I'm not with you on this one, Jacob. I think I'll probably join your side when we get to the sequels. I haven't watched the sequels as much of this, but here, I really like her character. And there's one scene that really sells me on her. And it's not that she sticks up for Peter on the bus. It's the scene where Peter's taking out the garbage And she's out there running outside crying after her father's been yelling at her again. It's not even their little talk where she talks about how she wants to go to Broadway and Peter's like, I loved you in the second grade play, you know, showing that he's 
memorized every moment of her life since they were in kindergarten together. Although that was nice, I gotta say. She recognized it as the first time someone didn't laugh at her dreams, you know. I thought that was a sweet scene, too. The moment that sells me, and it's, again, straight out of the comics, she's sitting there, and she's all in tears, but Flash shows up with a new car that he got as a gift for his birthday, and... Boom, she turns it on. Now she's excited party girl Mary Jane, the one who's always putting on that face during school. It showed me that she, and maybe I'm projecting because I know this from the comics, but she has to put on this face. She has to act because of how crappy her home life is. And that little moment where she's almost crying with Peter when the Flash shows up and all of a sudden she's, oh my God, it's so cool, tells me she is somebody to really care about and worry about. I love that scene. I love her performance in that scene. That scene makes me a fan of Mary Jane, despite the fact she might be a little bit of a hoback. I liked her. But, you know, as this origin story is unfolding for Peter, there's another dual story unfolding as well. And this one, well, I got more questions. The Green Goblin, Norman Osborn. And here, this is a lot straight from the comics. Harry Osborn and Peter were college roommates, and Harry's dad was the Green Goblin. They didn't know each other in high school in the comics. They met later. But here, it's, again, more economical storytelling, having Harry and Peter be older type of friends. And Harry's dad is a military contractor for Oscorp. Up to this point, the only thing that I could have told you about Green Goblin was that in the cartoon 60s version, he threw flaming pumpkins at people <laughs> and I thought had a deformed green face. Like, I thought he was a monster with a hoodie. And then he was also, unfortunately, the mascot that Stephen King chose to put on a giant semi-truck <laughs> in the horror movie Maximum Overdrive. If we ever do a King retrospective, I got hours on that. But just know <laughs> that my knowledge of Green Goblin is pretty limited, other than I think of him as kind of being in a Joker, Batman, arch-nemesis role. If you're going to pick a villain from the Spider-Man world, Green Goblin would probably be my first identifiable character. I I disagree. You know, when you talk about Batman, you immediately jump to Joker. You talk about Superman, you jump to Lex Luthor. With Spider-Man, when they were talking about a movie, I'm like, Green Goblin's who they go to? Really? What about Dr. Octopus? What about the Sandman? What about Kraven the Hunter? The Vulture? The Rhino? The Rhino? That one's silly <laughs> as hell. <laughs> Truthfully, if you want to know my favorite, it's Electro, but they'll never be able to pull that guy off. They can. They could pull off Electro. Not in that outfit. Not in the one I know. In Ultimate <laughs> Comics, he's kind of like Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen. Just a giant blue ball of electricity. So yeah, they changed the costume. Mysterio, another bad costume for a cool villain. Wait, 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 Arnie. You're saying you don't associate the Green Goblin to Spider-Man like the Joker to Batman? Because I've always, like, when I read the comics, I'm like, where's the Green Goblin? Except in the 90s, you expect Venom. But if it's not Venom, it's the Green Goblin. For me, no. But keep in mind, majority of the time that I read Spider-Man... 
I read a lot of the back issues with Green Goblin. I think all of them with the Norman Osborn Green Goblin. But there was also Hobgoblin, Demogoblin. There have been at least three people as Green Goblin. Three more people as Hobgoblin. It just seems so diluted. Yes, there are a couple very iconic stories with Spider-Man and the Green Goblin. But he isn't the first one that came to mind because there's just so many great ones that come to mind. I do think you're right. The rogues gallery for Spider-Man is pretty good. The fact that I know so many of the ones you're talking about is a testament to how many have hit in pop culture. But if I had to name just one, maybe Doc Ock. You might be right with that. But he would be my number two. So I don't think it's a bad choice. And certainly, if you cast Willem Dafoe... I mean, my God, is there an actor that looks more like a goblin than Willem <laughs> Dafoe? And Willem Dafoe wasn't their pick. He had to campaign for the role, almost like Sean Young wanting to be Catwoman. Wow. Did he, did he paint his face green and parade around the studio? That face! I mean, that jawline! He is the Green Goblin! Who else could do it without latex? Well, they were talking Nick Cage. Oh! <laughs> Cage must do comic book everything. (laughs) (laughs) But Willem Dafoe, yeah, what a creepy looking mofo he is. I can't ever imagine him playing a hero. I'm sure he probably has, but he just looks so villainous and dangerous. He's played Jesus Christ, so yes, Yes. he has played a hero. (laughs) But he does have a strange quality in that he can play martyrs and messiahs. He was also a martyr in Platoon and was up for an Oscar for that. I do think he's played sympathetic characters, but he did fall into a rut starting in the 90s, Speed 2. Yeah, he has the looks of a man who's shifty. And I do think that, yes, he is now typecast at this point in his career as being a weirdo, a freak, or just someone dangerous. All you needed to do to get the reputation as a, as a weirdo, as a freak, is the role he played in Boondock Saints, where you get the creepiest tranny masturbation scene on film. <laughs> That's a stretch. I don't know. I have so many I could go to, but... <laughs> But yeah, Willem Dafoe, my only problem with Willem Dafoe is during these early scenes where he's not supposed to be transformed into a maniacal evil guy, he still comes off as a maniacal evil guy. Well, that's all our pre-knowledge. We know he's going to be bad. We don't trust him. But it's actually kind of sweet when I think about it. He actually admires Peter. He is driving Harry around in a limo, meets his poor little high school buddy, and you can see him connect. Peter's written papers on research that Osborne has done, and they end up striking a strange sort of mentor relationship. Peter is caught between listening to the advice of his Uncle Ben and Norman Osborn. Somewhere, Sam Raimi has a smile on his face to hear you say that, Stuart, because the reason he chose Green Goblin as the villain for this, and he was not the first choice, but on a script rewrite when Raimi came aboard, he said, this needs to be about fathers and sons, and we need to have somebody who is a father figure competing for Peter Parker and Spider-Man here. And so what you have is this dichotomy. You have Peter, who has no biological father that's ever mentioned. He lives with his uncle, who is his father figure. And then you have Norman Osborn stepping in as this mentor, And then you have Harry, who Norman is constantly deriding for being stupid and flunking out of school and not being good enough. 
And later on, Peter gets jealous of Harry's relationship with MJ, whereas Harry's might be a little bit jealous of Peter's relationship with Norman. There's another layer to all these fathers and sons is Green Goblin almost wants to be like a father to Spider-Man. He wants to team up with them and be partners. Even when they don't know who the other is in Behind the Mask. So all of this is very good. I like scripts that find a way to forge these identities. I think that this stuff, like I said, the origin stuff is all very good. But I don't feel like Goblin's origin is as clean as Spider-Man. Not only is it not as famous, I don't know Green Goblin's backstory, but I struggle to understand what I see with what's presented here. Osborne is responsible for creating a super soldier serum or gas or something. He's a military contracted player who has a very short amount of time to prove that he can, what, make Captain America? Yeah, they say they're working on human performance enhancers, which I read as super soldier serum. I got that impression, and maybe it's just bleed over from already having that plot device now a couple times, but... I almost feel like that's the wrong approach. Would it be more satisfying if he had been working on the spider that engineered Peter? I don't know. This story isn't about arms races and military deterrence the way, say, Iron Man is. So why bring that into this? You're saying it has comic book roots. He's basically Tony Stark. They create a lot of advanced weapons for the military. The glider is supposed to be a mode of transport for combat, hence why it's so heavily armed. And they have this armor suit. I don't know why it's not full-on camo, why it's this wonderful jade green, but yeah, it is that. Now, none of this is on any of the DVDs, but just a few weeks ago, they revealed that they looked at going with the comic book look for the Green Goblin and revealed test footage of Raimi working with Willem Dafoe in full Green Goblin comic book-like makeup. It must have looked good. It looked weird. It really did. I have no idea how they would have fitted into the story. It actually moved pretty well, and it really did look witchy and comic book accurate. Honestly, it looked better than I'm Gonna Steal from Weird Al, the Power Rangers mask that he puts on in this movie, but they didn't go that route, and if they had gone that route, I have no idea how they could have explained that mask for military applications versus a war (laughs) mask or something. Yeah, I saw the glider, and I was actually... Pleasantly delighted by the way that they bring that in early on. I'm like, oh, that's cute. They're going to make that his little vehicle later. I thought all that was cool. But at no point have they introduced this mask. This mask! (laughs) What the hell are they thinking putting this mask on? You got Willem Dafoe. His face is a Green Goblin mask. (laughs) You do not need to put this mask on him. Truthfully, the scariest thing in the whole movie is right after Willem is transformed, and he leaps up onto, like, a banister, and he crouches, hisses, the muscles in his neck distend. He is, like, scarier than Jeff Goldblum in The Fly at that moment. I am afraid. I am very afraid. Yeah, you do not want to hide this man's face, especially not behind that redonkulous mask. The mask. Now, I know why they wanted to do a mask. They wanted to do this dueling story of... Peter's walking around, he has a human identity, he puts on a mask with a bug face, he has a different identity. Let's do the same thing for his villain. Well, compare and contrast. 
all conceptually very cool. But there is a world of difference between the Spider-Man suit that goes on Tobey Maguire and this stupid-ass mask. I mean, it just doesn't look right. The fact that you can see through the eye holes and the agape mouth, maybe if the mouth wasn't open all the time, but he just looks slack-jawed with the mouth open all the time, (laughs) and you can see his real jaw talking behind it. Everyone knows it's a mask. If you're trying to scare them, it's more alarming than it is truly terrifying and primal. The only hints I get as to why he might have gotten it is he collects them. They're around his mansion, apartment, complex, whatever. He seems to like masks. Those are tribal masks, though. This is not a tribal mask. This is something he made in his factory, in his laboratory. It's so mind-baffling later on. He gives his monologue to Spider-Man. He doesn't take the mask off. The mouth never moves, so it's just this funny-looking character prancing around giving his evil monologue. It's weird. It undercuts what should be a formidable foe here. I mean, in the early scenes when he's in his laboratory and gets gassed, and I mean, it looks like he's being executed. I don't know in what way that looked like that was going to be a successful operation. (laughs) But they fill it with gas. He's strapped down. He comes out, yeah, leering, and I'm all with it. But why he makes the choice for this costume and what he's all about, I don't know. You know, Spider-Man, in the next few scenes, we're going to see why he becomes the do-gooder, snarky guy that he does. I don't know that I ever get the scenes that explain to me why Osborne becomes this goblin. Oh, sure you do. There's a line that they drop that says, the gas will make you insane. And I think that's all the explanation they expect you to need. I know. Yeah, that's kind of a disappointment. I do want to give a shout out to whoever made the choice. You mentioned him getting strapped down. I just love the quick moment, totally out of character for Norman Osborn, but just great. When he's getting strapped down, he's like, ooh, those are cold, because there's big metal straps on him. It's, it's just a humanizing moment right before he becomes inhuman. And the mask is unforgivable. There's nothing we can say about the mask that hasn't been written in a million blogs. It is bad. It is terrible. It's unforgivable, and it's nonsensical. It cannot be explained through any way of the plot. I called this one of my favorite movies, but man, this villain, I agree with you, Stuart. I like the parallels that they try to set up, but the execution of the Green Goblin always left me cold. This is the opposite of Tim Burton Batman, because in that one, I felt like I'm not getting enough of the good guy, but I'm appreciating the bad guy going crazy. Here, it's the strange twist on that. I mean, I actually feel like the movie is so much stronger when you have a good hero, a good Spider-Man, than when you get with this goblin stuff and i feel like goblin drops out of the middle of this picture he drops a few bombs but for the most part the middle of this movie it's peter yeah because we return to peter and after that flash thompson car scene he thinks he needs wheels to impress mary jane and flash may have gotten a brand new beamer but peter thinks well i can buy that used junker for three grand and it'll be enough so he goes where every young kid goes for money (laughs) (laughs) The wrestling arena. Well, come on, Arnie. You go to New York every year. Aren't there just like sideshow wrestling arenas where you could go in and wrestle some washed up guy for a few thousand dollars? Not that I've seen. It's right next to the downtown library. (laughs) This is from the comics. I know that. And I remember hearing my grandpa tell me stories about when he was growing up. And, you know, you didn't have WWE and that was it. You had all these little sideshow wrestling arenas that you could go and watch. And this definitely seems like it's from that era. 
Yeah, I kind of like it. I mean, ludicrous maybe, but I think that it's a fun way of showing the steps into becoming who he's going to be. You know, he hasn't come up with a costume yet. These are essentially what? Silk screen sweats and a ski mask? I don't even think they're silk screen. I, I think he just spray painted. Yeah. Yeah. It's a stencil. <laughs> and, and I love this. You go through this whole scene where he's coming up with the costume design and somehow he's a really good artist and he draws this great looking Spider-Man from the comics and then cut to the costume. It's a great piece of humor. <laughs> it is nice. You know, I really like the goofiness of this moment. It made me think about Cap. Did you guys think about that moment where he has to be in the silly outfit and sing Star Spangled Man? This feels, and in many parts of this movie, feel structured in the same way. It's the same kind of hero, the earnest hero, the likable boyish hero who's magically transformed by science. In this moment, it really harkened back to Cap, and I really see Cap drawing a lot from Spider-Man. I didn't see it until you mentioned it, but yeah, Captain America could pull from far worse source material. Yeah, I don't know if Peter Parker's quite the Boy Scout that Steve Rogers is, but, you know, kind of these goofy, old-timey type origins with wrestling matches and going to expos, and I could see why you'd have that connection there. Yeah, it's just something that feels intuitive, really. It's, I mean, I could go through the whole movie and cite examples, but just in general, this is the first time that two Marvel movies feel so similar. I also like that when he's checking in at the thing, there's an actress there who, for the next decade, I'd go, hey, it's that girl who had one line in Spider-Man. Yeah, isn't she a comedian? She's an Oscar winner now. Oscar-winning Octavia Spencer from The Help. I don't know her from much else other than The Help, but having just seen that movie in the last year, I was surprised to see her back in the day. I think I remember when we were reviewing Halloween 2, Stuart, I said, and that nurse, she was in Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it made the final edit. Every movie I've seen her in, and I've seen her in quite a bit, and I remember seeing the trailer for The Help. I'm like, hey, isn't that the new Spider-Man girlfriend? And the girl from Spider-Man? <laughs> <laughs> so many connections. Like Kevin Bacon, only better. <laughs> yeah, Octavia Spencer, she gives a great line delivery here, which is why I remember her. Yeah. It's a memorable one-line role, which I guess showed she had talent even back then. But when I watched this in theaters, I wasn't here for Octavia Spencer. I was here for the chin. Bruce Campbell, uh, the longtime collaborator and on-screen personification of Sam Raimi. Working together since Evil Dead, here he is. He always does cameos, right? I don't think I can think of a Raimi movie that didn't have Campbell in it. There have been some where he didn't make it in. But by and large, he's there. Even if it is a cameo, like Dark Man, this guy is so much fun. I knew him, of course, from Evil Dead. I used to watch Briscoe County Jr., and so many other things with him in it. And shortly after this movie came out, I think even before this movie was on DVD, I had read his autobiography. And this guy, I was just so happy to see him there back in this realm with Raimi. Here he's the ringmaster. The one that gives Spider-Man his true name because Parker wants to call himself the human spider. Yeah, I've, I've seen Bruce Campbell speak many times, and he's like, without me, Spider-Man wouldn't exist. He, you know, really plays that fact up. It's it's great. It's <laughs> human spider. Oh, that sucks. 
Yeah, it would take a throwaway part and it makes it special. I like that. I like the scene. I like when he has to face off with Bonesaw McGraw. What wrestler is this? This is somebody, right? Oh, yeah. It's Randy the Macho Man Savage. Oh, yeah, it is. That's weird. I couldn't tell at the time. He's so grizzled now. He does look totally different here than I remember him being, even in the Slim Jim ads. It's the voice that tricked me off. I don't recognize him by face, but that voice, there's only one. What I really like about this scene, I haven't been a wrestling fan for a long time, but we talked about with the Spider-Man movies, like Spider-Man's supposed to be funny when he's Spider-Man and make jokes and outgoing, the opposite of Peter Parker the nerd. That really comes out in this scene. We we get that mouthy Spider-Man that's making all the jokes. And I like that. I don't consider this Tobey Maguire in full Spider-Man mode yet. And I think he's pulling this off well. This is the first time we see him really striking the pose. We've seen him climbing the walls. We've seen him swinging into sides. But here they get the iconic poses when he's like crouching with like one leg out. Yeah. Yeah, it is absolutely perfect. And this scene is when I became really into this movie, just how close it was to the comics telling the original origin story down to the wrestling scene. I mean, this is a scene that could be thrown away. He does not need to go wrestling for money in an origin story, but they're going to include it and they're going to do it damn well. And I am just loving it. And again, props to McGuire because when he wins, you only see his eyes, and that's all I need to see to see happiness, you know? His eyes sell me. It doesn't take the whole face. I feel like I'm in the hands of fans, and that isn't always the case. As cool as Burton's vision was for Batman, I don't feel like... As Jacob pointed out many times, he went to the comics for inspiration. He did his own thing with Batman. Here, Raimi's fandom is elevating the material and that he's working at the level of his best work here, but also in service of something that he didn't create. And that's really neat. I can't think of any other time in his career where he's done that. Yeah, and this is what's really firing for me, though, is I'm basically watching Amazing Fantasy number 15 come to life. And I can't believe how true to it it is. I don't know why they renamed the wrestler. Again, it's such a minor thing. Why couldn't he be Crusher Hogan? Why does he have to be Bonesaw? Uh, Maybe the Hulkster had a a trademark on that name. Yeah, there's already a divs on the Hogan wrestler. I don't (laughs) think he could do it. But yeah, just absolutely loving this. And then, again, right out of the comic, the promoter gets robbed and Peter does nothing. This is conceptually what I love, that I understand this is what makes Spider-Man such a compelling character. This is a story about puberty, about becoming a man. So, of course, what's the first thing he wants to do when he starts getting these weird feelings, these, these new powers? He wants to make money and buy a car to impress the chick. And things go wrong. He's not this perfect Superman-esque character right away. I love the fact that it takes Uncle Ben's death to put things in perspective and make him become a do-gooder. I am going to say this much. I feel like the story they're setting up here with Green Goblin would be better serviced if Uncle Ben lived a little bit longer and maybe Spider-Man could vacillate between the two father figures for a little while. Because once this happens, you know that Spider-Man will never turn back. He will never join Green Goblin. He will never do a bad thing. This scene is so dramatic, you can't ever imagine him forgetting it or forgiving himself for it. This is such a moving scene. It creates why Spider-Man is. Here's the thing 
that a lot of people don't get about Spider-Man because he is so jokey and he is so jovial. And I get, Jacob, why you were upset this was taken out of the TV movie version because you can't have Spider-Man without a profound guilt complex. And we talked earlier how the Spider-Man isn't brooding and the Spider-Man is joking. But out of all the heroes, maybe Batman alone is the only one who is as dark in his soul as Peter Parker. Parker is constantly tormented by the death of his uncle, and many other people die who just keep adding to that weight on his soul. And they are able to sell it here and still keep the story light. But really, this is a character driven by a deep pathos and trauma. Yeah, if anyone should get the Burton Goth treatment, it should be Spider-Man. No wonder he eventually puts on a black costume. Well, I think we might be getting it at the end of this retrospective. I'm getting that vibe from the new movie. We'll see. But here, I understand what you're saying, Stuart. I agree with that arc, but this was the right choice to make because I don't want to see what I fear the new movie's giving us, which is Spider-Man the hero before Ben's dead. It does need to take this to turn him away from the profiteering and turn him to being a do-gooder. And what a better good to do for your first one than to hunt down the killer of your father figure the way he does. And that is such an exciting scene. The first real web swinging we get. We saw him swing once into a building, but here's the first time it's a mode of transportation. It's fun, funny, clumsy, and exciting. Well, that's what I like about this is how clumsy it is, because this is the first time he's really pursuing someone. And throughout this film, whenever he's using this web, however the CGI may be, I really like that they try to bring some kind of real physics. There's times where he uses flagpoles as a lever so he could swing at a certain angle. You could see why he has to shoot and swing in this weird diagonal motion from building to building to go in a straight line. They really thought about how he needs to move in this movie. Yeah, it's a good scene and the darkest moment in the movie as well. I'm not even quite sure here that Mugger dies. I mean, I know he wants to hurt him and bring him to justice. Did he mean to kill him? No. Spider-Man does not kill. Spider-Man breaks his arm. He doesn't save him. Yes. And I don't know that he could have at this point. He's not practiced enough to shoot a web to stop someone in the seconds before they fall to their death. But he does not mean to kill him. He does nothing. The guy stumbles back, trips over a pipe. It's again another great Final Destination death. (laughs) Yeah. He's not remorseful about it, but he didn't actively try to commit murder. And I think that's an important distinction. I mean, in contrast, we cut over to what Green Goblin's doing. He's making his first kill as well. He's gone back to the people that got his aerospace contract and flown in on that stolen glider and blown them up. No pumpkins, though. Actually, those are pumpkin bombs. Those are called pumpkin bombs. Those little things he throws down that kind of have, like, ridges in them. They're not jack-o'-lanterns, though. Yeah, they're not carved pumpkins. They are orange. They have ridges. They're meant to evoke the image of a pumpkin, but they're not the literal pumpkins from the comics. That is very true. And I like that the competitor's technology that they are trying out looks a lot like a spider slayer from the comics that would go and hunt Spider-Man at the commission of J. Jonah Jameson later on. I knew that had to be something from the comics i was trying to figure out what that outfit i'm like is this from iron man i knew it had to be something i gotta say it though with the dropping of this bomb this movie is peaked 
At this point on, I feel like they've done for the first hour an incredible job of setting up the Spider-Man origin and an okay job of at least introducing that there's a Green Goblin around. But with the death of Ben, the movie doesn't have the soul that it does for the rest of the movie. It's not. It's just not as good. I'd agree with you if you jump forward 10 minutes. At this point, we still haven't seen Spider-Man. And what comes next, Sam Raimi does something that Marvel editor-in-chief Joe Quesada says shouldn't be done. They take Peter Parker out of high school again, move him into college. I don't think we're going to be seeing that in the reboot. I'm fine. I want to see Spider-Man in New York. I mean, that's where I know Spider-Man being. I'm open-minded with this Spider-Man reboot that we're going to be reviewing. If you want to do some high school stories, that's fine. But I don't think it's a sin to take him out of school. No, this story is about maturity. He needs to go beyond being in high school. So here is basically Peter Parker's essay, How I Spent My Summer Vacation, right? Because Osborne blows up the military guys. We then cut to Peter Parker and Harry graduating high school and talking about going to college together in the fall and moving in together. And then we get a montage. (laughs) And the montage is Spider-Man over the summer becoming a public figure, donning the outfit, and how does he go from spray-painting a hoodie to this outfit? Yeah, it remains a mystery. (laughs) The whole point is he avenges his uncle somewhat, whether it's passive or active, but now he's going to decide he's got to use his powers for good. With great power comes great responsibility and also comes a bright, new, shiny crime-fighting outfit, apparently. Like, there's no explanation for this suit. It just shows up. But it is pretty good. I will say it's a lot better than I feared it would be. Uh, Obviously better than the TV movie. I think I like it better than what the new movie's doing. I'll reserve judgment until I actually see it, but anything I've seen with Andrew Garfield, I feel like toby got the better suit but where does a freelance photojournalist get this suit well keep in mind at this point he's not even a freelance photojournalist he doesn't get that job till the end of the montage it's frustrating i understand and you know what this is the kind of crap i'm already reading on message boards about the new movie how could he possibly afford this suit you guys didn't have this problem with the raimi one the same problem exists this suit cost like a million dollars to sew it required laser cut raised foam (laughs) webbing i mean this suit is crazy expensive but you know what Screw it all. It looks damn cool. I love this suit. I really think it works. It is a great way to bring it to realization and make it not look dorky the way that 70s TV series did. Yeah, it's full body, and that's really hard, but it looks cool. I mean, look at Fantastic Four if you want to see where this can go bad. (laughs) They could have done the Batman and made it in armor because they didn't want to put Batman in spandex. There's so many things they could have done here to shy away from it. Instead, they embraced it, they wrote a seven-figure check, and came away making him look like a superstar. No complaints about the suit. His suit. (laughs) No, and it just shows up how bad Goblin looks in comparison. But this montage is just so damn fun as he's web swinging he's stopping criminals now there had been a lot of discussion when this movie came out 
this was a few months after 9-11. I heard that the teaser trailer for this movie, which you can only find on YouTube, it's not on any of the DVDs. I remember this teaser trailer. I do too. You think you were seeing a Michael Bay film where they're robbing a bank, a bunch of guys are robbing a bank and escaping a helicopter, and then the helicopter stops, and it gets caught in a giant spider web between the Twin Towers. And I'd always thought that was just meant to be a teaser. It was pulled as soon as 9-11 happened for obvious reasons. There was a poster, too. Spider-Man dangling off the World Trade Center. That's the one I remember. I don't remember the teaser. But yeah, I do feel like this movie has the benefit of being the first big superhero movie post 9-11 and set in New York. We were looking for heroes, and here he is. According to the special features, that scene was actually intended to be part of this montage. And that was the one scene they cut. I remember reading that they digitally removed the Twin Towers from the movie and things. They have. According to John Dykstra, they didn't. But According to John Dykstra, it was never in the skyline. He never went downtown. Not true. Right after he kills the mugger, he's on the Chrysler building. And we see the Empire State Building. And they pan in a way that I would expect to see the towers and you don't see them. And this was at the time when they were doing that very thing. They took it out of the Zoolander. They took it out of a lot of movies. There was this real fear that if you showed the towers again, it would recreate the trauma that people had on September 11th. And I could understand not wanting to put a downer into a superhero movie. And it's very questionable, but you don't want to remind people of tremendous real-world tragedy, and I really thought that they did CGI remove the buildings until researching for this podcast on the special effects commentary that I would never listen to for any other reason. They just said it was never there. Strangely, you see the Empire State Building in the background? That wasn't there. I love New York. I've been on the record many times. They enhance New York by digitally adding buildings to create an iconic skyline where none existed. If you were at that point on the Chrysler building, you couldn't see the Empire State Building. It's also probably worth pointing out that in this montage, as they talk with all the shop owners and people on the street, there are construction workers from Ground Zero who put their sense in. They don't want to remind you of the tragedy, but they do want to salute heroes. And I do feel like this movie, particularly at the end, in loving ways, evokes the spirit of New York in this time of tragedy. I think Spider-Man benefits in some weird way from being our hero in that dark time. Yeah, I had a question. Were they still filming this post 9-11? You know, I read that there were some scenes that were added to this movie after 9-11. I don't know if that's true. It was, for obvious reasons, not even touched on in the official materials on the Blu-ray or DVD. So the construction workers you're talking about, Stuart, could be an add-in later on. There's also a couple cameos. Xena, who has a long history with Raimi, thanks to Xena, is in there, as is filthy, filthy, really funny stand-up comedian Jim Norton. And they conclude it by getting us to the bugle, and more importantly, J.J., a real J. Jonah Jameson, one that evokes something from the comics. He doesn't evoke, he personifies. This is like, you could not have done better than if you had used, like, the 
voodoo magic from amazing stories to pour a potion on a magazine and make it come to life. J.K. Simmons here is astounding in the way he recreates this character. It's all the more sad that they don't use him very well. I think he only gets two scenes, but he is great. Do you want a J.J. movie? Maybe. He's good enough for it. If you can write a part that's worthy of it. I mean, he's kind of a drip because he's the one that doesn't believe in Spider-Man and is always downplaying his accomplishments and accentuating his bad associations. And that way, he's a character we shouldn't like, but he is so flippant and funny that, you know, you just can't help it. The comedy in these scenes just pops. They are so lively scenes, and J.K. Simmons steals it, but you've got so many other people going in these scenes. you got Ted Raimi popping in and out. Sam Raimi's brother, who's been in, I think, all of his films. Radio Raheem's there is, too. Who? I know him as Radio Raheem from Do the Right Thing, but it's the Robbie Robertson character. Yeah, the guy who you called Token in the pilot movie. Here, a much more accurate portrayal to the comics, an older African-American gentleman who's kind of the ego to Jameson's id. And then you got Elizabeth Banks of all people, Elizabeth freaking Banks in the thankless role as Betty Brant, Jameson's secretary who was in the comics, Peter Parker's first love. I wondered why they linger on her. For a second there, I thought it might be Parker Posey. I was very confused by that bit. It's just long enough for you to feel irritated when she doesn't come back into the movie. Here, I think that the Marvel Avengers movies we just finished talking about a few weeks ago learned so much from this movie about universe building in a way that is completely organic and doesn't detract from the story. It's not universe building like Green Lantern, where so much of that movie was built just to create sequels that probably will never happen. It's instead bringing the comic book universe to life, leaving threads around that, hey, we could pick up on this later if we want to because there's this story here we could build off of. Yeah, you're right. Does she come back in the sequel? She's back in all the sequels, and we'll talk about it then. (laughs) Okay, well then uh, it makes more sense. You know, Arnie, one thing you bring out, because you really know these comic books well, you talk about all these characters and how they're universe building and they're straight from the comics. What I like is that they don't seem to really detract. We've talked about other movies. Stuart's like, I know this person's from the comics. I know just because they draw so much attention to him, even though it took away from the film. In this, it doesn't. It just feels like here's this workplace with all these different characters in it. I won't belabor the point, but I will say this. I was prepared for him to spend more time at the Bugle than he actually does. I'm just loving these daily bugle scenes i also love that they're in the Flatiron building just a really great new york building and i think part of the reason i love this movie and the spider-man series so much is just how well they portray manhattan but our hero and villain collide for the first time at the world unity parade i don't know this I thought this was the Macy's Day Parade or the Macy Gray Day Parade. God knows she could use a little parade. (laughs) Macy Gray, welcome to the thing you'll be known most for. People looking you up after seeing Spider-Man to wonder if you're real. Well, come on. People knew she was real back in 2002. It's just the last decade hasn't been kind to her. You don't think she's going to come back as some duck woman villain? That voice? (laughs) (laughs) I honestly, isn't she a one-hit wonder? Yes. Yeah, she okay. got, uh, I try. Yeah, yeah. She's like Tina Turner crossed with a mallard. It's a very strange sound. <laughs> I had to look her up for this podcast to even remember what song I knew her from back then. It's really bad if you're a one-hit wonder and Arnie has to look you up. <laughs> <laughs> Usually you got those down. <laughs> 
You probably own her disc. You might even own two, Arnie. Sorry, Macy. Nickelback stole the song from this movie from you. And the scene that spawned a million lawsuits is Raimi was sued and Sony for replacing all of the ads in Times Square with sponsor ads. What genius came up with that? I wasn't aware, but I did think I saw Jerry Garcia as one of the floats. Am I wrong? <laughs> Were these extra balloons from Tim Burton's Batman 89? Because that suddenly came rushing back to me. I was wondering if Green Goblin gas was going to start shooting out of them. Definitely. I do think that they are borrowing from one of the big set pieces from Batman. I think this movie, from time to time, definitely borrows from Batman and Superman. I think they borrowed a building from Batman because I've been to Times Square more than... I can count anymore. That giant gothic building is not overlooking Times Square. The balcony that Harry and Mary Jane are on with all the evil Oscorp business people. Yeah, it's got the character holding up the ledge. It's very Burton-esque. Yeah, I think that's actually MTV. I don't think that there is a real building like that. Yes. This is where Peter Parker is taking photos as his freelance work, and he'll finally get some because... Well, Stan Lee is there. Brief cameo. I did recognize him as one of the many horrified people that are attacked when Green Goblin comes flying in. I do like his entrance with the smoke trail, and it's just convenient, though, isn't it, that he throws explosives everywhere, except right by Mary Jane when he throws a bomb that disintegrates only the ones who are, I guess, looking at it, and Mary Jane is fine. Well, he is targeting them specifically. This is the board that has dissolved his Oscorp and kicked him out of the company. I mean, these are the bad guys. They've betrayed him, so I think it was tactical. I don't think he was randomly hurling destruction. I think that this was a hit. Yes, it was a hit. I just don't know why we had to get the bad CGI disintegration scene. I know. It honestly reminded me of the day after from the 80s. I, I thought maybe it was a cutscene from Army of Darkness. Oh, those skeletons looked far better in 93. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, guys. I'm fine with it. I have no problems with this scene in terms of special effects. I am wondering, now what? Okay, so Goblin has avenged all that has wronged him. What does this guy want now? That's what I don't get. He's getting revenge because they try to kick him off the board, try to sell Oscorp. I'm assuming now that there's no board, he's in full control. They specifically said they were going to announce it after the parade. So by doing it at the parade, he's prevented the sale. But he never goes back and does anything with his corporation. Like, hasn't he succeeded? Can he take a break now? Take off the mask? What does Goblin enable him to do? Because I don't know what Goblin is about for the rest of this movie. He comes up with this plan to team up with Spider-Man. Why? What will they accomplish? To rule the world? Is that really the plan? I think it's just conquest, you know, to use their powers for nefarious reasons to continue to grow more rich, you know, more powerful. I don't know that there's an end to it. But later on, it shows Oscorp, he's the sole contractor for the military. Does he need to knock Banks off with Spider-Man 2 for some supplemental income? You have military contracts. That's a lot of money. I don't know if you need a side job. Perhaps all he wanted was someone super to pal around with. Maybe he just wanted to go out for drinks. He never says. I mean, again, it's neat for the whole parallel father-son thing, but it needs to go somewhere. It can't just be there for parallels. Yeah, that's critical. For the rest of the movie to hinge on that we could see a temptation that maybe Peter slash Spider-Man might be tempted to take. That he may stray from the path that he was put on when Uncle Ben died. 
but really, why would you go with this crazy guy? At what point would that be appealing to ride with the Mighty Morphin and throw bombs? Honestly, I never took this scene as much, except I always go back to Heat when I see these scenes. Michael Mann? Michael Mann's Heat. There's a scene in the middle of Heat where Robert De Niro and Al Pacino just sit down for coffee. And Michael Mann said, we realized that throughout this whole movie, the hero and villain never met until the end. And we need a scene with them talking to really get the characters to pop. And so we filmed this scene to put it in and it really makes the movie. And now whenever I see a movie like this and there's a talky scene between the hero and villain, I feel it's not plot motivated. It's character motivated as in we want the two characters to have a talky scene before they punch each other a lot at the end. And I never gave this scene any more notice than that other than is these two just talking for talking's sake, but nothing's going to change. Spider-Man is never going to go with him. He has no reason to go with him. Goblin's not really offering anything. It's just a scene to escalate the relationship. The talking scene you're talking about takes place after the parade. It's, it's at the bugle. He's taken prisoner. Right. The only thing that really is accomplished in this parade scene is Mary Jane falls in love with Spider-Man, and Harry feels threatened. And yeah, because by this point, Harry and Mary Jane are dating, and there's some great scenes where Peter finds out about this because he runs across Mary Jane accidentally, and she's pretending she's out for auditions, and she's actually a waitress, which she says Harry would think was low, and Peter, of course, accepts, because Peter is just that kind of guy who doesn't look down upon service workers. Well, he's also poor, too. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. they're from the same background. It is kind of weird that Harry and Peter are living together, and yet there's this economic despair. I get the sense that it's more imposed because Norman likes Peter so much, and Harry, I don't know, he says they're friends, Do they ever hang out? Do they ever do anything together that's fun, that would make them friends? I feel like they're friends by default because no one seems to like poor Harry. And maybe it's just the innate repellent quality of James Franco, you know, our worst Oscar host and our strangest General Hospital alum. He is a weird dude, isn't he? I don't understand James Franco, and I had forgotten he was in these movies, but his Harry is kind of a cipher here. I feel bad for him because he is the unfavored son of Norman, but at the same time, he's kind of hard to like. This is where I know James Franco from. I never really watched Freaks and Geeks. I did see a couple episodes, but it didn't make any impression. And I, yeah, I'd seen him in other stuff, but this is the movie where he came to my attention. And from this point on, whether it's Pineapple Express or 127 Hours, he's now Harry Osborn to me. He does some good stuff. I really loved him last year in Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Here, I do think they're friends because of those early scenes, but yeah, he's his father's son and he's the type to keep secrets. He knew Peter liked Mary Jane and Harry gets what Harry wants. When Mary Jane breaks up with Flash, Harry swoops in and doesn't tell Peter. Now, why do you think he does that? Does he do that to hurt Peter? I don't get the sense that Mary Jane was the girl everybody wanted. I'm sure there was other people that he could go after, but why would he choose to go after the girl that he knew Peter loved? It seems vindictive. He never bought into bros before hose. <laughs> yeah, I guess he, not. I, and he says, Peter, you had your chance and you never took it, so I didn't think you're going to, so I moved in. But at the same point, she is a waitress 
who is trying to be a soap opera actress, I do think that that would be frowned upon by the moneyed culture that Harry so much covets and wants to emulate from his father's world. I don't think Harry wants to emulate it, and part of me has always suspected Harry dated her to piss off his father. On the one hand, he's trying to get Mary Jane to dress real nice at the parade to impress his father, but on the other hand, he tries to distance himself from his father. He doesn't want to be dropped off in the Rolls Royce. He doesn't want to be associated with that money. I could see Mary Jane as a grounding presence. I never got vindictive from him. Maybe because this kind of story has been straight out of the comics where Peter wants a girl and his friend starts dating the girl. I didn't get mean. I never got any animosity between Harry and Peter. I got that they were friends from the opening scenes, from the closing scenes, and it's enough that it carries these middle scenes. I think he didn't tell Peter because he didn't want to hurt Peter, but he did want what Mary Jane offered. Harry's probably pulling for Mary Jane to become successful because it's established early. Harry's not too bright. He might be a trust fund baby, but he'll probably blow through that money real quick. He needs someone with bringing in an income. And to that point, after she barely survives the pumpkin bomb attack, the first thing he says to her on the phone is, how are you? I want to buy you something. I mean, he is trying to undermine the impact of being saved by Spider-Man. Of course, Peter, finding out about them dating from MJ, sets up a theme of this movie. Don't tell Harry. It's like the repeated mantra of this film is either with great power comes great responsibility and don't tell Harry. I got a feeling in the sequel someone's going to tell Harry. (laughs) I feel bad for Harry. I mean, you say he's dumb, but maybe he's just not informed. Maybe (laughs) no one has ever told him anything his whole life. He never learned the ABCs. He never got to do anything. Oh, I'm on Team Harry's side here. I don't know that I want him to have Mary Jane, but I do want him to break out of his shell and become a man, too. Why should Peter be the only one to mature? Here, I kind of joked earlier, Mary Jane's a bit of a hoe bag, but she dates Flash. She dates Harry. While dating Harry, she becomes interested in Spider-Man and Peter Parker. This kind of goes back to, I guess, a girl from an abusive household. This seems like that kind of chaotic, all-about-me, drama-filled, and I don't mean like drama class, I mean like too much baby mama drama kind of person who you may not want in your life. You mean an actress, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I deeply apologize to all my actress friends, but you know it's true. I'm just going to say Yes, the creating of constant drama to always have someone on the side, to always feel the push and the pull. It's a way to stay connected with your emotions. If your job is to be tapping into your expression and feeling experiences and drawing from that in a method acting way, it just tends to be a stereotype that I see a lot with people in the performing arts, the thespians as you were. So I think why Kirsten Dunst is working for me. She is personifying a type very well. This is not to say that I'm in love with her as much as Peter is, but I get her, and I think that she does work as a focal point. And my focal point is right on her nipples in the rain scene. I haven't seen such good nipples since Scream. There's a reason. It's not just because of the upside-down kiss that this scene is such a classic. (laughs) I completely go with this scene, and the fact that she pulls up his mask. First of all, she pulls it up in the perfect angle. It's, again, one of the things that you see a million times in the comics at that exact angle. But second, she could rip that mask off. He couldn't stop her by the time she's pulling it up. She could reveal his face. 
and she doesn't because either she likes the mystery, kind of where I'm betting with Miss Drama here, or because she doesn't want to break that trust. Yeah, and there's a slight pause by Spider-Man. Like, I just love that he's hanging upside down, first of all, because that's Spider-Man. I mean, that's one of his iconic poses, but he stops her for a second. You can tell he's thinking, do I let her do this? Do I trust her enough to touch the mask? And then she goes in and does it. It's, it's a great scene. Tremendous scene. So, Stuart, you say that it's peaked. I agree with you. The Goblin stuff may not be working for me so much the second half, but all the Spider-Man stuff, all this Mary Jane stuff, it's clicking really well. Uh, I like the scene. I'm not sure how many other scenes there are clicking, but there's not too many of them. Goblin is becoming more and more important to this story. They keep running into each other. We mentioned before, he's burst into the bugle and gases Spider-Man, whisks him away so he can say, hey, do you want to join my club? And then leave him. Doesn't take off the mask. Doesn't find out who he is either. And then later meets him up in a burning building and is like, you still want to join my club? No. I mean, why would he ever think that Spider-Man, A, could do him any good, and B, would want to do what he does. Now, the burning building scene always seems kind of out of the blue, because it comes right after the kiss. And it's almost like we went to a commercial break, came back, and we're back in the montage from a half an hour ago. It's like, what? we're just at a random burning building? But I like the scene because by this point, the bugle has painted Spider-Man out to be a menace. The police are trying to stop him, but yet they won't stop him from going and rescuing people from a building, even if they know it means he'll escape. And it's not until you find out the goblin is the one who started the fire and is hiding in the building that this scene even makes any sense in the movie where it's placed at all. It's possibly, though, my favorite action scene because, man, this film is gorgeously shot. I love every frame of it, but I don't know if it ever gets any more beautiful than when it's surrounded with a red and blue outfit, a green outfit, and orange flame everywhere, and his little slow-mo jumps with the razor bats coming at him. It's just amazing to look at. You mean the crawls? <laughs> the scene itself, yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's just pretty. And it does give Peter the Thanksgiving Day wound. I didn't get the impression that this was Thanksgiving when he was in the burning building. Nobody had a turkey. But it's the Thanksgiving Day wound that clues Norman in on Peter's identity. Batman returns. Catwoman and Batman find out who they are at the exact same moment. And then they have to deal with that. I thought that was really well structured. It seems imbalanced that Norman finds out that Peter here, he shows up finally. I mean, he's got suspicions even beforehand. Is Peter upstairs and you know, blood drips from the ceiling, but then nobody's there, all of this, what have you. But he finally has it confirmed when the wound he inflicted just an hour ago is bleeding at the dinner table. But I don't know. Is that fair that Peter doesn't get to know? I mean, I like that the goblin is a worthwhile foe here. I like that he is as strong as Spider-Man. They fought twice now, once at the parade and Goblin ran off, once in the burning building and Spider-Man ran off. They seem evenly matched, which I really like. I hate it when I feel like the supervillain isn't worthy. By giving Norman this intellectual leg up, it really makes him a threat now, not just to Peter Parker Spider-Man, 
but to everyone at that dinner table, including his own son. You don't know who he'll hurt to hurt Spider-Man. That is completely working for me. But why does he want to hurt Spider-Man? This gives him a new angle at coaxing Spider-Man into whatever his plot is. And again, this is a problem with his whole motivation in general, but... Peter is someone that he admires. Peter is someone that he saw even offers to financially help, who could even get him a job at Oscorp. Finding out that the guy you like is Spider-Man might just as easily make you want to not hurt Spider-Man as target his family. Well, Stuart, one thing we haven't really touched on with Norman is that he has this kind of multiple personality thing going on when he's not in this awful looking Green Goblin suit. We get this Norman that's conflicted, like he doesn't know that the Goblin's in him, and he has these moments where he's hearing voices early on in the film, and then he has this great conversation with himself in the mirror, and I think it's important that he learns that Spider-Man or Peter are the same person, because as the Goblin, he hates Spider-Man, as Norman, he loves Peter as his son, and so it brings that confidence conflict out in him. I think it's because it's Willem Dafoe that I buy this multi-personality thing and it just he has such a weird face you could pull it off that he's having these two conversations with himself but I like that conflict. That's the conflict Norman has to have. And the scene in the mirror where Norman finds out he is the goblin is perhaps Dafoe's best scene here but it also really sells that when he finds out it's Peter, he's telling the Goblin persona, no, I can't hurt Peter Parker. And Goblin's like, no, you will, because I'm crazy. And to quote the Goblin, no one says no to me. I did like that. It was a nice way of easing us into the Goblin. If you're not going to have a physical transformation, if you're not going to drop him in acid and have him emerge as a mutant, then, okay, yeah, he's gone crazy. And that starts with a voice in his head that gets louder and more dominant. And then he's talking to his reflection. It's actually kind of what they do a little bit in The Evil Dead, even. Laughter where there is no body. I, I like it. It seems like a Raimi touch, if you will. But I don't feel like once that's established, I know when Goblin is kicking in and Norman is there. I don't feel like that is well-defined at all. It becomes even fuzzier as the movie wears on. After he finds out Peter is Spider-Man, I don't know that he ever becomes Norman again, other than the scene where he's like, I can't. From that moment on, I think that he's always Goblin. And so we finally get to our final fight, and you guys have been saying Batman. I didn't really see Batman in it, but when I'm sitting in theaters in 2002, and I see this final showdown with the Green Goblin at the Roosevelt Island tram, I'm thinking, wow, did the Green Goblin see Batman forever? Yes! Make your choice! You can only save one! No, I think I'll save both. At least this time, they fall on different sides of the bridge, like... <laughs> Tentatively, Spider-Man does have to pick to go on one side of the bridge. It's not just dropping him down the same hole. And I do love the visual. You see Spider-Man's mask and the, I think, Oakley sunglasses built into it. And on one side is the tram and on the yeah. other side is Mary Jane. Very well done. He kind of lost me when he sang Itsy Bitsy Spider. And I'm not into the conflicts because I can't figure out what Goblin wants. This just feels ridiculous. Why have him make a choice? If he was the Joker, I get it, because Joker is about how cruel fate is, and that's his sense of humor. But Goblin, just not the same thing. One of the things that Goblin says over and over is that they'll hate you. No matter how much good you do, they'll hate you. So here he has to make a choice. Does he save the girl he loves and let a bunch of school kids die, which... 
they're going to hate him for that? Or does he save the school kids but let a loved one die where Peter hates himself then? Okay, so it's really about framing it. Are you self-interested or are you this humanitarian? That's the choice he's having to make. If you go for the girlfriend, you're more like me than you want to admit. Yeah, it's always been about, and this is a very pre-9-11 viewpoint, I feel. It's the one thing that's so ingrained in the film, they couldn't remove it. But what is said on that rooftop scene after Spider-Man is gassed is, people love a hero, but more than that, people love to see a hero fall, to fail. And that's when he says they'll come after you, which coincides very nicely with Jameson's media attack and the police going after him. I don't know, especially six months after 9-11, that people would really go after heroes in that way. I still think there's some schattenfraude in our culture, but I think it's aimed less at actual, you know, heroes like firemen and things and saved for the people who go on like Dr. Phil and Dancing with the Stars. But Oh, they're my heroes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that's, you, you know what I'm saying. I do. But that seems to be the point Goblin wants to drive home. And I don't know if, again, it's still a recruitment technique or just, you know, he says you never know when some insane person is going to come along and make you make a sadistic choice. It could just be pure sadism. It's not satisfying. No, okay. <laughs> but All right. That's what it could be. If that choice had been made that turned him into the Goblin even, I could go with it. There's a whole lot better ways... Framing the argument, and I feel like that's why I'm not into these scenes. Not that they're not well done, not that the people aren't doing them with the best of their abilities, and that it's superficially entertaining. It's just that once you take away a soul out of a superhero fight, I'm not as involved. I thought this movie was going to be better than it was. It's surprising that this is the climax. And you know, seeing Spider Man do these heroic things and all that. I gotta say, McGuire's voice isn't working for me. I'm not sure how much of it's his body. I think that we may be back in 70s Spider-Man where you know, McGuire's there when the mask is off. But I know he did some of his stunts, but I think a lot of it was stuntmen and a lot of it was no man. It was just CGI. But when you get Tobey Maguire's voice coming out, he's making the quips. But he just doesn't come across cocky enough. It started in that wrestling ring. And it just keeps going where the voice isn't matching the actions for me. I'm just buying him as Peter Parker. I'm not buying him as Spider-Man. One of the problems for me, and this comes up with Green Goblin, too, is that there seems to be no motion in this mask. You can't tell that there's a mouth moving underneath it. It just doesn't seem natural. Well, that must be why they both have their mask like ripped off of them by the end of it or burned off. I feel like the costumes on both sides don't do so well here. It's always a problem with actors and masks. I feel like that is a age-old superhero movie problem. Is We hire these actors because they're good actors, and then we have to stick them behind unemotive faceplates. And I think these are Spider-Man fan complaints. I, as the non-fan, had no problem with Maguire in these scenes. I think he's fine. I, I don't know how he is supposed to be. So what he did seemed right to me. But did he come across cocky to you? Did he come across tough? To me, he was always that nerdy, unsure kid, even when he's trying to make the jokes. The posture looks tough. But then the voice comes out, and when the mask is off, the face never looks tough to me. You know, this is early on in Spider-Man's career. It's, it's going to be kind of awkward still. It wasn't an issue for me. So 
Spider-Man's in the process of saving both the kids and the girl because he's a superhero. That's what he does. It doesn't matter if it's two choices. He'll save them both. And the Green Goblin's about to win, except the citizens of New York rise up and throw tomatoes at him and yeah. say, get out of here, buddy. This is New York. No one takes our town. This has to be something inserted after post 9 11. Has to be. Has to be. I agree. If it was added post 9 11, I'm curious what pre 9 11 stopped the goblin from shooting Spider Man. Pick up or not, I do love that scene. And post 9 11 could not be better to show New York unity that way. It works so well for this movie and for Spider Man. And again, here's one of the reasons I think it wasn't an add in. It proves the goblin wrong. Because after the city's been hounding Spider-Man for so long, now the city comes together to protect Spider-Man. It's while he's trying to save a bunch of school kids. I never saw the city hounding Spider-Man. I saw J. Jonah Jameson putting out yellow journalism about Spider-Man. Most people I saw didn't really subscribe to it. Mary Jane didn't subscribe to it. The cop that let him go back into the burning building didn't subscribe to it. I don't see Spider-Man as a persecuted figure. The cop who let him go back in the building was trying to arrest him. I get that, but he didn't. So it's not persecuted. We never saw a scene where New Yorkers beat up on Spider-Man. Never. Other than thugs. I got it out of the movie. Through the headlines, through the cops chasing him. You know, there were a couple of scenes. It was all montage, but I did get it. It's just, it wasn't drilled home. It was that he was a vigilante, and that's against the law, but it wasn't the citizens were against him, and that's when you've really lost the battle is when the people turn against you. Yeah, you're breaking the law by being this vigilante. Of course the cops are going to come after you, but it's when do the people turn against you, and they're telling you to get out of town. We never get that scene. I think we did need that scene. Something that let Spider-Man's PR drop. He gets blamed for something that Goblin did. Maybe that would have been a better plot for Goblin, is that he frames Spider-Man, that he's telling him they won't like you, and he's actually responsible for the bad PR that makes it true. I think that would help. I'm sure there's a way of writing it. I mean, uh, the rest of this battle, it's surprisingly cursory. I mean, like it isn't like they go through the whole town and tear it up. There aren't a lot of bombs being thrown or anything. I thought this would be the launching into a very expensive climax, but truly, they did more destruction back at the parade. Yeah, they just crash into an abandoned building and have their last big punching fight, and I like it. I like, again, like I said earlier, Goblin is equally matched. It's a good fight, but it is less than amazing for the Amazing Spider-Man. At least they finally take off Norman's goddamn mask. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) It's the first time that he realizes who he's really dealing with, which... What does that change for him? I don't know. I don't know how he exactly felt about Norman. He makes the scene, I have a father. His name was Ben Parker. Was there ever any conflict that he was going to side with the Green Goblin and become evil? Was that ever a temptation in this film? That would see be a really heroic statement if he had gone through some kind of conflict where he had to make that decision. Speaking of which, where are his real parents? We'll get to that in about four movies. Okay. They're never mentioned in this movie. In the comics, they died while on a super secret spy mission. Okay. Spying on the Red Skull and Hydra. Okay. Do you really want me to continue? <laughs> in, in four movies, whenever it counts. Just, just curious. So he's impaled by the glider. This, straight out of iconic Spider-Man comics, this whole thing really... Because Norman Osborn did die, impaled by his own glider in the comics, after killing Spider-Man's girlfriend by throwing her off a bridge. Spider-Man saves her with his web, but 
the jerking of getting caught by the web breaks her back, and that is the death of Gwen Stacy. Spoiler alert. <laughs> breaks her back. Wow. Okay. Well, you know what? Then I guess if you were a comic book fan, you might have actually thought that this climax was more exciting than it really was. You might actually have thought someone was going to get hurt here. I never thought this. But people in the theater with me for Spider-Man said they thought Mary Jane was going to die because they'd seen the scenes on the bridge in the trailer and remembered that that fall killed Gwen Stacy. Hmm. So it did have a lot of people on the edge of their seats. But yeah, it is the exact same way the Green Goblin died in the comics, impaled upon his own glider trying to hit Spider-Man from behind. I do like the don't tell Harry bit. I mean, as much as I feel bad for Harry, <laughs> it's another humanizing moment. It's so funny that in your last moments, what does it even matter what people know or not? It's just, it shows a sort of vanity. And the fact that he's never cared what Harry thought of him or never seemed to care about Harry in general, that that would be his dying wish. I don't know. There's some poignancy to this. And there's the scene earlier where he said... He's never been the kind of father that Harry deserves, and he was going to make amends. How sincere was he? I believed he meant that in that time, but I didn't know, again, was that Goblin talking, or was that Norman? At that point, I don't know that it mattered. I think it might have been Goblin, because Norman never really seemed to care that much. (laughs) I really thought that he was going to turn Harry full on. Like, if I can't get Spider-Man, maybe I can put Harry on the back of the glider and do something. Just hold on. Just wait. (laughs) It happened in the comics. Oh. All right. I told you there were three goblins. Harry was number dos. Oh, really? Yep. Oh, so he could be the new Green Goblin. Yep. That's kind of what I'm expecting at the end of this, where Harry is telling Peter that he vows revenge on Spider-Man right out of the comics, leading Harry to become the Green Goblin number two, Peter Parker's roommate, Spider-Man's arch nemesis. I kind of like this. The ironies are thick here in these last scenes, the way it's all worked out, with Peter being the best friend of Harry and his alter ego being his nemesis, with him finally having the opportunity of having Mary Jane reciprocate his love and having to turn it down. All of it's very rich and kind of soap opera, but I mean that in the best possible way. It really gives this movie a nice emotional ending that I don't always feel. Even though the climax was kind of lame from a comic book, pow, punch, bam way, I do feel like the emotional climax is good. Yeah, I love the line, my gift, my curse. I mean, Peter does end up marrying a soap opera star, and you called it out, Stuart. It's very soap opera-y, but... Not in a bad way. There's some good melodrama, but there's also lightheartedness. I like the emotional death. I said I've never been able to get into the comics, and I've tried. It's not like I read one and gave up. I've tried over and over. But in this condensed form, I like the emotional spectrum that Spider-Man covers. All the dual identities and and the weird triangles of relationships that go on. And that this is a good thing, but it's my gift, but it's also my curse because it's harmed so many loved ones. Like I like this web that's been spun with Spider-Man. Yeah, this scene works totally for me, and I love it as a teaser for the sequel, too. I mean, it doesn't undermine this film in any way, but when I walked out of that theater, I was like, yeah, it's all right. I can't really frickin' wait for that sequel because it's going to be so good, but it was okay. (laughs) (laughs) It just set up so much. I couldn't believe that the movie ended with Peter walking away from Mary Jane. It's like, ugh. After that kiss in the rain, Peter walks away and she touches her lips. Does she know from that kiss? Mm. I picked that up this time watching. I've only seen this movie a few times, but I picked that up. She kind of lingers after that kiss and, and you have to wonder. 
I caught that my very first watching, going, does she notice Peter Parker and Spider-Man kind of taste the same? And then we have to end on a high note, and we really do. The screensaver I searched for years for and can never find of Spider-Man swinging through New York. Another thing I have to believe that they added post 9-11, the fact that he ends up silhouetted next against the American flag. They really want to drive home. This is New York's hero here. They underline it big, bold letters, but the films earned it. I don't think it was added post 9-11. Everything they said, this was the most effects intensive shot. They started it day one. It was the last thing they finished. Did they modify it at the end so he lands on a flag? Quite possibly. But it was way too much to be completely added in just six months. And I love it. It's a great visual. They actually saved their best effects work for the very last shot. Well, hey, I just hope he stays in New York and doesn't go to Hong Kong. (laughs) And as the credits roll, Nickelback. I hate this song. I don't hate Nickelback. I'm sure that a lot of people do hate Nickelback. They have some good songs. I like Rockstar. But... This song, I remember the summer of 2002 thinking, if this song's getting this much damn radio play, that movie must be a hit, because this song's no damn good. I don't like it, and I don't like Nickelback. They ain't getting any of my money. (laughs) Well, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Spider-Man? Jacob? Like I said at the beginning, I went into this movie arms folded, show me what you got. It had to prove of itself to me. And early on, it shows me what it's got. You know, I've said so much, I hate origin stories. Stop doing these origin stories. Give me something else. I like the origin story of the Spider-Man. Maybe that's why I'm so anti-origin story now, because I know we got another Spider-Man movie coming up, and I don't want to sit through this again. I like this origin story. I like the complexity of Peter Parker, the relationships that he has because he is a superhero, that being Spider-Man is a gift and a curse, and that it's against this back drop of going through puberty and becoming a man the problem is about halfway through the movie a lot of those themes drop or they become a lot weaker as we get into more regular superhero tropes the villain here is weak physically he's strong but his motivations are weak and that hurts it but what i like about this spider-man film it seems like a logical extension of the christopher reeve Superman films, at least the first and second one. It's sincere take on the optimistic superhero. There's those moments where, you know, his uncle dies and he could go goth and Green Goblin gets impaled, but he didn't cause that. He didn't go out to murder him. And I like that sincerity and that they pull it off. I like a lot of this film. I wish the villain was a little bit better, but there's so much here that I like. It outweighs the stuff that doesn't really work for me. So a solid recommend for Spider-Man. Stewart. I like it so much better than I remembered liking it the first time. You know, when I initially saw that, I I walked out with almost no feeling to it. It was like, oh, what am I going to do for dinner? It was fine. It re-familiarized a lot of things that I already knew about Spider-Man. I think I was struggling with the disappointment of Goblin. He was a character I remember liking from the cartoon. I wanted him to be a worthy foe. I don't feel like the story really featured him in a way that gave him that battle. But get past the Goblin stuff, which is all very mediocre. I mean, I don't feel like any of it is bad. There's nothing that had me outraged. There is a very strong arc for the character of Spider-Man, for his origins, for his friends. It sets up to have a great franchise next time. I have not seen Spider-Man 2 or 3, but I'm hoping that they can build on what's done here and that we can actually get an even stronger movie this time. This is a solid recommend for Spider-Man, but with the optimism that I'm going to like the future movies even more. Three for three, recommend. 
I agree with all of your points. I do think that the Green Goblin stuff is weak. And I've always thought that from the outfit to his motivations, I actually walked out of this film. I said, eh, it's okay. And the stuff that held me back from really liking this movie was the lack of a strong villain. But in rewatching it, the film's visuals and the origin story and all of the hero stuff that we're given is so strong in this movie. And how many of the movies that we've talked about, especially these recent Batman films, were movies about the villain? They weren't movies about the hero. And so to have a movie where what I enjoy is the hero, and I enjoy it so much that I can overlook that terrible villain, then really elevates it. These are characters to whom I connect. Now, a lot of it may be because this is like a comic book come to life like I've never seen before. Even the Marvel movies that came after this don't stick quite as close. They always merge the Ultimate Universe and a bunch of other stuff. This is the most strict adaptation I've seen, but it works so well. And I think the reason why Kick-Ass also ranks up as one of my favorite movies is because it evokes so many memories of this and then perverts them and turns them on their ear in fun and amusing ways. Go back and listen to that review. But yes, I give this, despite the weak villain, a strong recommend and just enjoyed it tremendously. I can't imagine, though, anyone doing the origin story better than this. And when I heard they were rebooting it, I'm like, you know... I think they'll do an Incredible Hulk reboot where the origin story has happened. Let's tell a Spider-Man story. And I knew he was still going to be in high school, but I'm like, there's a whole montage. We could still have him be Spider-Man in high school. It could be a soft reboot where they change what they want and keep the origin story because you just can't tell it better than this. And that's a high bar for this upcoming film that I don't know if they'll overcome. I am with you. That's the one thing I don't need is for them to go back and tell me who Peter Parker is again. They've done that. They're not going to do it better. I don't know. I'll go in with an open mind. I hope they do it better. I can't imagine how they could. I hope they do it better. They're going to certainly do it more with the parents coming in and a lot of other stuff. I guess we'll find out in about a week and a half. And we're going to keep doing... Films two a week. We do Spider-Man 2 on Friday. And also don't forget, TikTok, watch the clock. You're running out of time for Alien. Prometheus, still in theaters. You can hear our review of all the Alien films, including Prometheus. By supporting our show with a donation of $10 or more, all the details are at our homepage. Go to nowplayingpodcast.com. Click the graphic at the top of the page. And... If you want to hear us review the Steven Spielberg films, E.T., Close Encounters, and War of the Worlds, a donation of $25 or more. All the details again at nowplayingpodcast.com. But the shows will only be available until the end of the month. Come July 1st, if you're seeing fireworks, you're not hearing our podcast. So donate now, or they go back in the vault with Chucky, Jaws, and the rest. So, Stuart Jacob, thank you for joining me for Spider-Man. And remember, with great podcasts comes great responsibility. It's all my fault. I drove Spider-Man away. He was the only one who could have stopped Octavius. Yes, Spider-Man was a hero. I just couldn't see it. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Now Playing Spider-Man Retrospective Series. It's good to have you back, Spider-Man. Part of our Marvel Comics Movie Retrospective Series. It's hip, it's now, it's wild, and how? Crawl on the World Wide Web to NowPlayingPodcast.com each Tuesday and Friday as we review another Spider-Man movie through the release of The Amazing Spider-Man in July. What are you waiting for? Chinese New Year? Go, go, go! And be sure to visit the Venganza Media Gazette at VenganzaMedia.com forward slash gazette to read Arnie's reviews of every episode of the 1970s Spider-Man TV series. Far be it for me to interfere with the First Amendment. Be my guest. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, go to our archives. You can find reviews of other comic-based movie series, such as The Avengers, Batman, X-Men, Blade, Ghost Rider, and Punisher. Hey, where are all my comic books? Oh, those dreadful things. I gave those away. We also have non-comic-based movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Rocky, Transformers, The X-Files, Tron, and many more. There are bigger things happening here than me and you. You will also find individual movie reviews, such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. I'm so loving this. Oh, me too. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Game. Looks like just in the nick of time. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. I'll be there. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm going. I'll be here when you get back. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Everybody needs help sometimes, Peter. Even Spider-Man. You can find a donate button using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Meat. I'll send you a nice box of Christmas meat. Best I can do. Get out of here. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Looks uncomfortable. It gets kind of itchy. It rides up in the crotch a little bit, too. Now Playing's Spider-Man Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. Misery, 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 that's what you've chosen. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. And I've never even seen his face. Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or Columbia Pictures. Spider-Man and all that the Marvel Universe contains is the property and trademark of the Disney Company. And no infringement is intended. What are you, his lawyer? Get out of here. Let him sue me. Get rich like a normal person. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I missed the part where that's my problem. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production. Copyright 2012. All rights reserved. Enough said. Starring Tobey Maguire, William Defoe, Kirsten DeLove Interest. I'm sorry, Kirsten Dunst. Going way, 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 way back to the second podcast of this Marvel retrospective. Man kick thing. it kick ass. No, that's the third. Is it? Yes, yeah. man thing was number <laughs> two. Do not okay. take me back to the dark one. <laughs> Go <laughs> Go <laughs> kill everyone in the cast. <laughs> okay, we're not going that far back then. <laughs> I'm sorry, Stuart. I I'm not. You can just you can go back there. I will not go with you. <laughs> yeah, I need to rewatch that movie. Jeez, oh, you own it. <laughs> yeah, which version? 
I'll probably watch my Region 2 Steelbook version. Thank you with the extra scenes. Jeez. As long as they're bloody titties. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Cut over to Oswald. Is it Oswald? Osborne. It. Osborne. I'll never get that right. Just call oh, him Norm. Storm and Norman. We'll cut over to, what is it? I'll just think of Ozzy is what I'll think. That'll help me. Although that might confuse me. But Norman. <laughs> Not the f- green goblin. <laughs> but when we. And I don't trust Wikipedia, especially unsourced. No matter how many times we quote it on this. Yeah. Notice Peter Parker and Spider-Man kind of taste the same. Oh, what? Would you rather me say kiss alike? I mean, I wasn't trying to be too dirty. I, I was just going back to uh, semen yeah. webs. I know, I know. There's a spit or swallow joke that we will not explore. <laughs> I've seen the Spider-Man porno. I know where that upside down kiss goes. Oh, oh, no. I've not gotten past the Robbie Robertson sex. I just couldn't go any further. Oh, oh. So See, I, ju- I just skipped to that part because I knew they had to do it. Yeah, the very first sex scene is between Robbie Robertson and Betty Brant. Really? That's what I want to see? I just... Robbie Robertson is the lead singer of the band. I just, like, I've never, that name is weird to me. This is a comic book character? All right, whatever. Did you really say TikTok? Watch the clock? Have you become the Riddler? <laughs> <laughs> is there Time Master? Is that like a, a villain? Batman 66. All right, I'll refresh. <laughs> you can keep it. Just... <laughs> I would have been fine were she still alive with Shirley MacLaine. She is still alive. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw a movie with her in it yesterday. No well, joke. maybe it was filmed a few years ago before she died. <laughs> no, she's quite alive. Plus, she's reincarnated. So, like, even when she goes, she'll just come back okay. down from the spaceship. Let, let me try again. Electro, Doctor Octopus, the Rhino, the Lizard, yeah, the Vulture. Just Stan Lee was at the zoo and just yeah. started. It really kind books. of is. It's like how, how many people can be animals? See, now in DC, there's a character called a superhero called Animal Man, where he's just every animal. Yeah, that was like an animal. Do you ever remember that show? <laughs> animal, yeah. <laughs> just a great name. I don't even remember the show, but I'll always remember the name. <laughs>